This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. She said the one thing that Africa is missing is the return of its children. That was a really powerful statement because here we are all around this diaspora becoming successful and doing amazing things. And I think it's important that we don't forget the need to look towards the continent. And some of us, that might be a lot easier than others. And others, it may be more idealistic. But I think the reality is Africa does not move to the next level without taking a proactive approach to helping it evolve. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Stanley Lumax, founder of African Chop House, which celebrates African culture through good food, music, and people. Stanley's also the founder and owner of Taranga, an African fast casual restaurant in Harlem, which I kind of got to make a trip down to New York. You definitely have to. He's a restaurant paneur. I don't know if that's a word, but he actually has a professional life too. As a marketer and a photographer, he's done work with brands like Nike, the NBA, Converse, Beats by Dre. But his passion... Sharon, what I love is he's taking all of its experiences and applying it to bringing the African diaspora together. That's almost like pan-African take. And he's the child of Ghanaian immigrants. And he's got his feet in both worlds. Mm -hmm. And he's from West Africa. His wife's from East Africa. And just a really thoughtful conversation that kind of stirred up a lot of things in me. Yeah. I don't know what you think, Sharon. I thought the same thing. There's something about his energy that's truly magnetic. And he was very thoughtful. He touched on a lot of different topics. Like he was really able to help us to see things through his eyes. And I kept going back to wondering if that's because by trade and his, and his passion is photography. We talked about that at the beginning, but it is this interesting thing where he sees the beauty or he sees the unique moments in community and in bringing people together. And I think a lot of what he's set up for himself does that as well. Yeah. And I learned a lot more about early eighties hip hop. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) What I will say, fair warning, there's a little bit of background noise because Stanley was recording outside from his home in Brooklyn, but it's a great conversation. So we'll get out of the way and we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Stanley. Stanley, welcome to the pod. Thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me. So a lot of people, they've heard of you. They've heard about African Chop House. I hope some of them have been to your restaurant, but They probably don't know who you were before all of this started. Can you tell us a story from when you were a kid? Wow. Trying to think of a good one here. (laughs) There's so many that are coming into my mind, and I'm just trying to think of the most relevant one. We want the most embarrassing one. That'd be good. Yeah, we want the most. All right, I'll give you the most embarrassing one. That one comes straight to my head. 
Awesome. So I grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey. And I remember my dad buying like a rack system. I don't know how old you are, but like back in the day, stereo. Oh, we're old, Stanley. Stanley, we're old. So so you guys remember stereo rack systems, right? So there was like the receiver, the turntable, the tape deck, et cetera, et cetera. So my dad bought one. Remember, it was Kenwood. And I remember him just doting up after it like, dads do when they buy expensive things. And I was probably eight or nine years old. And I remember discovering hip hop. And one of my friends was over and I was showing my friend this turntable. So of course, what what else would you do as a, as a eight year old? We started scratching records on this turntable and we screwed up the needle. So later on that day, my dad had a bunch of friends over and of course wanted to show off his new turntable and he put on a record and it didn't work. So the first thing he did was call me downstairs and ask me if I was playing with his turntable. Of course I said no. (laughs) And after getting the third degree about messing with his new turntable, I copped a plea and admitted to it. And I can say now I'm 43, so I can't do anything. I don't know, man. Statute of limitations on <laughs> your dad's records. That, that one's forever, dude. I'm not worried about the records, but okay. my dad commenced to give me an ass whooping in front of all his friends. So you asked for embarrassing, so that, that's what came to mind. So this is happening in my household right now. No turntables, no stereo systems. No oh, I thought you were going to say that, yeah, that you literally still had vinyl in your no, house. No, I'm not cool. <laughs> I don't live in Brooklyn. No, this is a genuine question for both of you. Because Stanley, you're a dad, right? Yes, two girls. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I got hit when I was a kid. We had what's called the dunda. It's like a stick. It's Hindi for stick that we got hit with. And we don't do that now. Time out. And the funny thing is, every once in a while, my wife and I, to our daughter, when she's misbehaving, is like, Honey, you don't even know what would happen when we were in trouble. And she's like, what What would happen? <laughs> and I can't even tell her that we used to get hit because I don't want to bring up the topic. I tell the my punishment. Yeah, oh, yeah, you were like, I got hit? Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you guys just don't understand how good you have it. We live in this democracy of a household where you can say whatever <laughs> you want as long as you... <laughs> where you can find yourself, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have that. Wait, wait, what'd you get hit with, my friend? And Sharon, what'd you get hit I with? can't believe we're having this discussion, you guys. <laughs> the kids need to hear this. The kids today need to hear this. What I got hit with, there isn't even a name for what I got hit with, because I'm still trying to figure to this what day do you mean? out where, where my dad got it. It was literally, do you know what a radial tire looks like? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with no. the, like, the steel tread. Oh, my God. It was, it was literally like a... I don't know if it was a piece of tire, like literally you could see the steel tread, the rubber, the steel tread, the rubber. I don't know where he got it from, how he made it, but yes, that's what I got beat with. Oh my gosh. In my house, it was, I think in a lot of Chinese families, it's a, like a feather duster. And yeah, that's what my you, wife says. Right. Yeah. It's very Chinese. I don't know. And it's like, I feel like you only see those in Chinese houses and people only buy them to beat their kids. <laughs> and it hurt? So here's the thing. That was like did it hurt or did they like tickle the, you to death? No, no. So here's they, they, no man. That, that thing's plastic. Like that you was it used, with your wrist. Yeah, it it was used as a threat. So I actually never got hit by that. But we had one in our house, and it was like you know if you're bad, we're gonna hit you with that. I did get spanked once with chopsticks, and apparently I don't remember this part, but my mom told me the chopsticks broke. Like that's how bad it was. 
Are we going to air this? <laughs> because I know my sister is my only family member that listens to this. Yes, so, probably. I'm okay. I'm okay so knowing the that dumbbell, I get. Which was the stick. But once my mom was in the kitchen and I was causing shit and my mom took the roll because she was cooking, she took out the rolling pin and started to hit me and it broke. And my <gasps> mom started laughing and I got, I got away scot-free. <laughs> What is this a podcast about? I know. <laughs> Being abused growing up. Oh, oh, man. So our kids, they've heard stories about my husband getting punished by a belt. Apparently my father-in-law, same thing. It's like they, have, they all have a special tool. It's like that tire. You only use it for this one thing. And we've never hit our kids with a belt, but... There are. <laughs> I like the qualifier. Oh my god! <laughs> hey, but, Stanley, can you call child services? <laughs> but there was this one time when they were just like totally misbehaving, and my husband took a like he takes out a belt and he just all he did was like kind of hold it, and the kids remember the story and they just completely snapped in line. And I was like, oh, it works. Like How you just have it? to have that cute. They're six and eight now. Yeah, that wouldn't work with my kids. My kids will say, "Yeah, yeah, you're not going to hit us because we'll call the oh. police." <laughs> and that's when you say but i will turn the wi-fi off so. yeah see that's real punishment right there definitely it's funny so stanley you said you're from new jersey yes i grew up in plainfield new jersey in plainfield new jersey and maybe you get asked this a lot but i know i definitely do where are you from really <laughs> both my parents were born in ghana west mm -hmm. africa so i am Ghanaian. that's great do you go back there often? Have you gone back to visit? I was there last December trying to go, obviously before COVID, I was trying to make it an annual thing with the family. The last time I was there was last December. So beyond punishment in the household, what, <laughs> what did your mom and dad do when you were a kid? So my mom was the executive assistant, or as we called it back in the day, secretary <laughs> for the chief of police in my hometown. And my dad was a diesel engineer. I still have no idea what that means. <laughs> How did they end up in New Jersey? Uh, that's New a Jersey? good question. I think what the reality with most immigrant groups is there's someone that goes ahead and sort of finds a place where they settle and they let everyone else know, hey, come to New Jersey. I'm here. <laughs> so I think one of his friends was here for a while. And when he decided to come to the U.S. where he knew people, he tells me stories about spending time in Brooklyn when he first got to the U.S., but he ended up settling in, in New Jersey. So if I think about little boy Stanley in Plainfield, New Jersey, what did he want to be when he grew up? From early age, I decided I was going to be a lawyer, but I, I honestly don't think it was ever what I really, really wanted to do. I think the reality is most immigrant people, there's the whole lawyer, doctor, engineer, those are your options, or at least those are the options that I hear discussed. And growing up in an immigrant household with pretty much working class parents, I wasn't exposed to a ton. So it wasn't like, oh my God, I want to be this or that. It was more like, okay, lawyers make good money and out of all these things, probably do the least amount of math. So I'm going to be a lawyer. Least amount of math. Yeah. I guess it depends what kind of law you're doing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, that, that was my initial thought. Basketball was always a passion of mine. I discovered photography at an early age, but kind of knew I wasn't going to the NBA and I had no idea that you could actually make money taking photos. So I, I always had a really practical approach to my future career. Well, kind of spoiler alert, you became an accomplished photographer, but how did a camera fall into your hand as a kid? Was it a gift? Did you? Yeah, did it's, you it's interesting because I, I don't remember... Like, 
when I became interested in it, I just always knew I was interested. So for instance, I'll show you how old I am, right? There was a promotion at Burger King where they actually had in the Happy Meal a camera. It was a small, very simple camera that took 110 film. And I, I would say that was probably the first camera that I owned. And then I remember upgrading to a bigger camera with a flash that also took 110 film. And then when I got old enough to work, I bought my first camera with a zoom lens, still point and shoot. So for, for whatever reason, I always had a camera in my hand. It wasn't really until I got to college that I learned to use a camera, an SLR. Before that, it was really just using point and shoots. But I always had this desire to capture moments. I still have photos from eighth grade and high school, you know, till this day. What do you like to photograph? I like to be a fly on the wall. Recently, I started doing more portraits, but I really like photographing people to sort of living life. Sports, spent a lot of time photographing sports as well, basketball specifically. Well, so the other spoiler is how you came on my radar was your work with African Chop House. And now hearing this motivation for photography, was that part of it? You just wanted to put interesting people in a room and take their picture? Well, I mean, definitely the first part, I wanted to put interesting people in the room, you know, taking their photos, just, you know, everyone that knows me knows I always have a camera. I'm always taking photos. So it's sort of expected. But the goal was really, if I rewind, and I, I hate telling this story because it almost feels like <laughs> I'm giving him credit, but it was right around the time when the guy in office got elected. And I remember there was a lot of news around immigrants being deported. And a lot of folks I know from all over the continent of Africa had folks going back or they couldn't go back to visit people. And it kind of motivated me to just get some of my friends together. And the first one I did was probably about 50 people from literally all over the continent and the diaspora. And I didn't have an agenda of we're going to talk about this or we're going to come up with a solution for it. It was more to just get people together, celebrate our culture, celebrate our food, listen to some music and just have a, a good time. I did it in my home and it just felt right. Sometimes you do things and it's like, wow, this is great. And it became one of those things where like literally every three months I wanted to do a new one and get more people in a room. So it continued to grow and people would ask me about it. And being in marketing, sports marketing specifically, I obviously thought about how do I make this a brand? How do I make it more? <laughs> the evil marketing gears yeah. start turning, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the first couple that I did, like I said, were in my house and where it sort of turned the corner was, again, I was working at Translation. I was working on the National Basketball Association business. So I was always at NBA All-Star and All-Star was in LA that year. And I just decided I'm going to try to do this outside of my house. I'm going to try to take this to LA and see what happens. And I remember just sort of pitching it to some friends and they were like, uh, I mean, it's a cool event for your house, but do you think you're ready to do it during All-Star? And I believed in it. I wasn't trying to outshine the Jordan party or, or whatever the case may be. It was really just, I'm like, look, if I get 50 people here, it'll be a success. And a good friend of mine who's an ex-NBA player named Pops Mensa Bansu, who's also from Ghana, I called him, told him about it, and he was like, let's do it. So I initially was looking for Airbnbs to do it at, and Pops had an idea and connected me with another NBA player named Luau Dang. We ended up doing it at his house. And NBA players have 
really nice houses. So that part really helped amplify the relevance of the event. We had all the right people there, we had great food. One of the people that catered it is now the head chef of our restaurant and partner, Pierre Cham. So it sort of opened doors for me in a, in a really interesting way because again, something that just started out as an event at my house became an opportunity to open a restaurant. I definitely wasn't thinking about opening a restaurant. That wasn't something that was on my radar of, of things to do. So I want to back up a little now that we've spent a little bit of time in your childhood and some time in the now, the present. How are you the same or how are you different from that little kid with the camera on Plainfield? I'm still an introvert. I mean, it's really interesting to, to say that because what I've realized is the only reason that some people might think of me as outgoing or whatever the case may be is because I've always felt like closed mouths don't get fed. And working in marketing and, yeah. and advertising, yeah. being an introvert isn't necessarily going to get you fed. You know, I remember early in my career, the biggest criticism I would always get from bosses or people I answered to was, you need to speak more. You need to be more outgoing. And I think all in all, I'm a pretty laid back person. So the perception was always, oh, he's aloof or he doesn't care or he's not interested or he doesn't have a point of view. So I think with all that being said, it, it sort of forced me to put myself in positions where I had a voice and I was able to speak and, and articulate my point of view. It's interesting because I think what people misconstrued the definition of introvert, extrovert, as I've come to understand it is an extrovert gets energy from being with people. An introvert being with people, it takes the energy. And I'm a bit of a forced extrovert, but I'm introverted. And when I turn it on, it's hard to turn it off. And the next thing I know, within an hour and a half, I'm completely drained and dead. But what I like about as I think of myself in a situation like yours with something like Chop Houses, you do it to put the room together and be a fly on the wall of that room. Yes. Right? You want to you want to see right. what's going to happen. Like Sharon yeah. knows of my intros that I love to make to people or even this podcast. I love to put people in a room and have a conversation and see where it goes. But I got to go sit down on the couch and read right. a comic book after this. So like that you can observe, like you're doing it so that you can be an observer. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, that's literally what I was thinking when I bring people together. The thing that gets me most excited is meeting two people and them telling me, you know, their backgrounds or whatever the case may be and saying, you should meet this person and putting them together and some sort of magic being created by their connection. I don't need to be the center of attention. I just want to make those connections happen. Yeah, I joke that I always want to be the guy behind the guy or the guy behind the girl. I'm yeah. more happy doing that. Yeah. Definitely. So Stanley, when we think about you sort of had such an interesting path and now you are running a company of your own, running a business. Are there ever times that you felt that you had to be different in any way to fit in either now or as a child? Well, yeah. I mean, I think being a child of African immigrant, it's always about fitting in. That's just, honestly, I think it's any child. I think the reality is when you're growing up, the worst thing in the world to be is different, or at least that's how it was when I was growing up. I think kids yeah, today- Childhood is hard. Childhood is hard. I think t kids today embrace difference a little bit more. But like when I was a kid, my God, everything made me nervous and, and gave me anxiety. You know, my parents speaking without accents, the food we ate, the clothes that we wore, everything that we did made us stand out. And those were all things as a child that you don't have. I'll speak for myself. I didn't have the confidence to sort of explain why these things were awesome. And it wasn't until I was older where I started embracing all those things. And again, for me, that's where hip hop played such a big role in my life, because even from a musical standpoint, there's a period in hip hop where it was very Afrocentric and everyone was talking about Africa and kings and queens and things of that nature. And all of a sudden, 
When was that? I'm ignorant. When was that? And what are some of the artists? Let's just say 80, 88. You know what I mean? You had Public Enemy. They were just always very pro-Black holistically. You had Karis One, who was specifically talking about our African origins. You had the Jungle Brothers. You had Tribe Called Quest. You had Queen Latifah. You had like sort of the whole Native Tongue movement that all embraced different things, whether it was African beads, kente cloth. A lot of the stuff that <laughs> we were wearing just because that's what we wore, all of a sudden became prominent on television and people embraced it. So the things that I used to be ashamed of, I now took pride in the fact that the world was recognizing it. Yeah, I feel it. It was like this. I had to protect the secret identity of my parents' accents, the weird food, the Indian Bollywood or budgens blaring on the weekends. I didn't want my neighbors to hear that. But now it's cool. Why can I be a teenager now when it's cool? You know, <laughs> Like everyone loves Eastern shit now or South Asian food. But back then it was weird and I was ashamed of it. No, I mean, it's the reality of my and a lot of my peers' lives. Like, I mean, there's tons of us that are doing amazing things, but we all went through that same struggle as, as kids. You know what I mean? Being different, whether it's color of your skin, shape of your eyes, the texture of your hair. All of these things were things that I, I struggled with. It's funny because now I, I embrace it in such a, a strong, confident way that it's, it's weird to believe that there was a time where it was something that I was ashamed of. And, it, and for me, it definitely makes me, as a parent, really push to make sure that my, my children have an understanding of their, their heritage, their dual heritage, more than anything. My wife's from Eritrea, which is in East Africa pretty much like the birth of civilization and I'm from West Africa. And it's not just about them knowing one or the other. It's about them knowing both. My wife grew up in Sweden. I grew up in the U.S. So again, in our household, the reality of there being a big world out there is standard. It's not like something that my kids have to discover. They both have dual citizenship. They have multiple passports. They've been a ton of different places around the world. And it's something that we, we continue to put as a priority. Yeah. One thing I think people are becoming increasingly aware of is Africa, right? As a continent of countries, not just a continent where some Black people came from. And I want to probe on this a little because you know more than me, and I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, by the way, my mom, she was born in Uganda, Indian, a refugee to the UK when Idi Amin came into power. But that's the only reason for a while I knew a lot about Africa. And people, I think, realize Asia isn't just, you can't just say Asia, right? Thai people are very different from Malays, from Singaporeans, from Chinese, Japanese Indians. And I think it's, easy for folks like Sharon and I to articulate what those differences are, given some of our heritage. Yeah. And I read an article where you kind of explained the difference between Nigerians and Ghanans. And I'm not asking you to like, to take apart the entire continent for me, but- We want a TED are, Talk. We want a TED Talk. Yeah, now. we need the TED Talk. If you ask me, hey, Roman, what's the difference between South India and North India? I could talk for 10 minutes on it. Or what's the difference between Malaysia and Indonesia? Having lived there, I could say that, right? But what is, even Eritrea and Ghana- Okay, East Africa, West Africa, what, what are the big differences? What are the stereotypes, so to speak, without getting yourself in trouble? Well, I mean, look, the reality is when you think about West Africa, you think of where most African-Americans descend from, right? Slave so, trade, right? Yeah, so Ghana, Nigeria, Liberia, 
so on and so forth. Sierra Leone, Senegal, we tend to be stereotypically darker. Our hair is of similar texture. And then when you think of East Africa, specifically around the Horn, places like Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea. And the reality is there's a variety of, of skin colors and light to dark, but the traditional expectation is for them to look like my wife, a little bit lighter skin, hair being a bit longer, so on and so forth. Food is different. I mean, I think from a West African standpoint, rice is a big part of our diet. I'm sure you've heard of jollof rice. I mean, there's a ton of back and forth and friendly debate about who makes the best jollof. I have a term. My wife and I argue about this because she likes long grain. I like basmati. And we're like, you're totally racist. And I think everyone who rice is in the cuisine. <laughs> That's funny. Because <laughs> like, no offense, Sharon. Fuck long grain rice. I'm 100%. <laughs> I stand tall for my basmati from the Himalayas. So anyway. I respect that. I respect that. The one rice that's not acceptable in my house is rice pilaf. My own kids are like, this is not rice, mommy. I'm like, it's not. It's really not. <laughs> that's funny. I'm going to I'm gonna steal that. Rices. Yeah, yeah racist. Don't be racist. So I had so many, like you, as you were talking about the different countries and the different foods, I had like so many thoughts in my head, but I want to talk about your daughters because you mentioned them. How old are they now? 12 and nine. Oh, so they're kind of like little teenagers almost, right? Yeah. I mean, definitely. <laughs> and so you mentioned they have multiple passports. You're in a, is it multilingual, your household? Do you guys speak more than English at home? I mean, in the house we speak English. My wife, she also speaks Swedish. So she's talking to her siblings, she'll more than likely be speaking Swedish. We have a ton of her friends and whatnot that came from Sweden, live in the area. So Swedish is probably the second most spoken language in our house. That's very cool. And what are some things that you and your wife hope to pass on to your daughters in terms of heritage and language and food, especially? I think overall, just an appreciation for where we come from. The reality is, unfortunately, I, my which is the language my mother speaks, mm -hmm. isn't amazing. So nine times out of 10, they won't get it from me. My father speaks another language, Ewe. I don't speak at all. So again, another one. I've failed as a parent. And my, my wife... I feel you, man. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my my wife speaks, speaks Tigrinya, but it's not something that we speak a ton in the house. So again, we've really failed our kids from not passing on our, our traditional native languages, but we do try to expose them to the culture, the history as much as possible. I mean, obviously the food and, and honestly, beyond the language, just the overall customs, traditions and feeling of what it is to be from these different places, whether it's observing or celebrating in some form or fashion, things like the traditional Orthodox New Year, which is different than our New Year or Easter or Christmas. And I think overall, our community is made up of a lot of folks that have similar backgrounds. So for our children, I think one of the things that I'm really proud of is the fact that they understand Africa as a continent with a variety of people. And it's not something that is out of the norm for them. All of our friends, we have friends from literally all over, but specifically on the continent, I mean, there's they've been exposed to people from everywhere. They've had food from everywhere. And it's just a part of who they are. And I like to think of myself as a Pan-Africanist from the standpoint that I look at Africa as a whole as, as one. Obviously, there's a ton of different communities and people and so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to minimize the differences. And some people might think it's a romantic view of the continent, but I definitely celebrate Africa as a whole, as well as individual countries. I think we need to be romantic. 
I say this with all seriousness, we should address the terrible things. We should address slavery. 12 Years of Slave should be a movie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We should watch, all watch Hotel Rwanda. We should understand what Idi Amin did, et cetera. But at the same time, if we're going to dream, right? And I say this is anyone, all Americans, everyone in the world, we have to, the best movie I think that did it for me, actually the best two, I never thought I'd say these two movies in the same line. Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni takes, it's a comedy that takes place during the Holocaust and Black Panther. And it's, let's celebrate, let's turn to the future. There are dark things and dark conversations that need to be had. Black Panther, the central conflict is a very dark one, even though it's an Afrofuturism movie. Life is beautiful, fucking takes place during the Holocaust. But I think we have to be romantic and dream about it. Otherwise, we're just, if all you do is acknowledge the terrible things, which should be acknowledged, it's a downer, man. I don't know. Like one thing that drew me to you when I saw some of the videos on YouTube, and we'll put them in the show notes, about what's happening at Chop House is it's a celebration because you can't always be crying. Yeah, definitely. I mean, our goal is not only to celebrate, but educate. Funny enough, the last Chop House we did before the quarantine pandemic, our guest of honor was Dr. Kwao, who is the or was the ambassador to the African Union. Very, very powerful, amazing woman who literally spoke to us about sort of what I'm saying, right? One quote I took from her speech, she spoke for about an hour and she, she said, the one thing that Africa is missing is the return of its children from the diaspora. And I think that was a really powerful statement because here we are all around this diaspora becoming successful and doing amazing things. And I think it's important that we don't forget the need to look towards the continent. And some of us, that might be a lot easier than others based on family and relatives that are there. And others, it may be more idealistic, but I think the reality is Africa does not move to the next level or chapter without the diaspora taking a proactive approach to helping it evolve. And that's just the reality, right? I mean, we're living in a time where I don't think it's ever been as clear that <laughs> we're, we're not wanted here. You know what I mean? Holistically, whether you're Indian, Chinese or African, we are not wanted here. I mean, that's just the reality. And I think we really have to get to a point where we're, we're starting to look beyond the need of validation from <laughs> from people that don't want us here. You know what I mean? It's probably the biggest challenge that we have as as a people or people of color is the fact that we need awards and validation from these systems that literally are making it super duper clear that we're not wanted here. When you see a, a cop kill a black person and the reality is they kill a black person for something that is a potential breaking of the law. And then you see someone like the kid that shot up a church and was given fast food and put in the back of a car. It's just mind blowing. It's like, what else do you need to see to make it clear that there's a desire for us not to be here or, or that we, we just don't matter? You know what I mean? A movie, a documentary called, I think, Cloud Over Brooklyn about a young man named Yusuf Hawkins who was killed in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn in 1989. I was on HBO the other day. And I mean, it's literally the same thing that we're talking about now. So it's like, none of this stuff is new. You know what I mean? Literally none of it's new. There are a couple of threads here, man. I have to check my privilege and I always have to, right? Like the Asian experience versus the black experience are, are very different ones based on how 
we were brought here. And I know you came with your parents one generation ago, but you were perceived by society as a black man, right? And all the trappings that come with that. So here's my gentle pushback, because I'm feeling pain and confusion right now because of the you're not wanted here thing. Like, I think it was a year ago, the kind of go back to your country meme started to pop. But, and I get frustrated by that. And I just kind of want to be a good Asian and not rabble rouse. But at the same time, if we don't, it's weird to use this statement because it was used by the right. But if we don't stand our ground, then we will be overtaken. If I don't put that Wakanda Forever or Black Lives Matter sign in my yard, the support the police Trump signs go up too. And yeah, could we go back to Canada, be a dual citizen or move to LA or stay in the blue bubble? But lately, the blue bubble has felt popped to me. I don't know about you, man. Some shit's been happening just outside of the city in neighborhoods in the Hudson Valley and Connecticut and stuff. And part of me is like, fuck, do I want to be here? And then because of my daughter and all of that. But then the other part of me is like, if I don't stay here, it won't get better. If I don't stay here and let these people get used to me, they're going to keep regressing. And we're in a regression winter type period right now. And now would be the best time to leave. But do I want to? Stanley, I'm not fighting you here. I just like, I'm fighting with myself on this because I'm arguing both sides. No, I'm with you. I mean, I, I definitely know what you mean. And the reality is I don't plan on going anywhere physically, but I think it's, it's less of a physical thing and more of a, a mental thing. Regardless of me being here and me raising my kids here for this time being, there's always a look back to what's going on in Ghana or Africa as a whole. For me, that's that's a must. So even if I never leave and I, I stay in the U.S. forever, you know what I mean? I think there's there's always going to be a connection to the continent. And I think that for me is more important than physically being there because there are still things that I can impact or help evolve from the eye of the storm. But I also don't get confused in terms of the certain realities that exist here in terms of exactly what I just said. I'm not allowing anyone to run me out of town, but I also am not shocked or blown away by a system that has been doing what it does for a long time. About the diaspora thing, I think it was like late Obama administration when Modi became the prime minister of India. And I'm going to not talk about my points of view on Modi because that that'll get me in hot water with older Indian people. But something he said was one of the most powerful assets India has with America is the diaspora, right? All the Indians who are here, the linkages mm. between cultures and companies founding. And so this links me to Africa. There's a diaspora in this country and in Northern Europe as well, Northern and Southern Europe. And the flip side of it, there's been a lot of news, you can go read it about China's investments in Africa and what's going to happen because of that. And I get scared about that. I do as an American. But what gives me hope is, yeah, but we got more Africans in our country that want this connection. The thing you just expressed that's an edge we as Americans have over China with our connection to Africa. Now, if we'd only start putting more money back into the continent in a useful way, but I don't know, back to the diaspora, America's connection with Africa, a point of view on China and Africa. It's funny because I had the honor of, of having this conversation with two individuals that know a lot more about economics on the continent than me. And 
it also made me realize how much I don't know. My initial thought was, oh my God, all the resources are just being taken out of Africa and China owns everything and so on and so forth. And there's definitely a negative to that. But again, I think where I can speak about is the mentality piece. I can't give you the hard numbers in terms of China's impact on the continent, but what I do feel like we need to do in order to evolve is mentally and collectively work from the perspective of ownership, right? If we look at Africa as something that is ours, we won't be as quick to give it away. The fact that there aren't any African businesses that allow us to own the infrastructure, the building of railroads or telecom or these sort of things, those are the challenges. I mean, and take that back because there are a couple telecom companies that are African, but... Oh, well, but where you're going is there's not a black American Elon Musk saying, I'm going to pour capital into Africa. Right. Or not, to it, the, you know? not to the level of making tremendous impact. I think like, look, the reality is that I don't want to overstep my bounds because I know there's a lot of different entrepreneurs that are making great strides in, in these different areas, but you get what I'm saying. There isn't the Verizon wireless of, of <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. or these companies that I think holistically put us in a place where we're able to compete. And that goes back to what seems to be a bit of a conspiracy theory, but I also believe that there's a lot of forces in play that prevent those things from happening. And I think that's another big part of the challenge. It's not like these things don't exist because we we can't do it or we can't create these things or we don't have the intellectual capability. But I do think there are forces in power that sort of want to minimize our, our impact on, on the content. So the story that broke this week, very tangentially related, was about how the oil companies have been pushing plastic recycling since the 70s, right? Even though they knew it was fucked up. And why I say that's related is, had someone mentioned that in the 70s or the 80s, you would be like, man, you're a conspiracy theorist. What the hell? Mm. And it's like, I do think there's a ghost in the machine on some of this. But then I do wonder, and is it our generation or our kids' generation? Okay, so what's the African entrepreneur pack that lobbies Washington to, to pour investment in because the PRC is doing it or to build local businesses up in a Marshall Plan sort of way? And I don't know what that's going to take. I'm out of my depth too, Stanley. I'm just, a, I'm an armchair economist <laughs> or I'm interested in nerding out. So Sharon, pull me back. I mean, otherwise I'll start talking about comic books next. So I'm actually going to pivot. So I think you guys have touched on world-changing topics and we can't solve all of that today. But I think- that would be the ideal, right? To have some kind of coalition or some group to band together resources and knowledge and, and all that stuff. But I'm going to pull back, Stanley. I want to talk to you about your love life. <laughs> totally pivoting the subject. How did you and your wife meet? We met in Brooklyn. We, we actually met, I just graduated college and I was visiting one of my friends that lived in the Bed-Stuy area and he took me to the Labor Day Parade on Eastern Parkway. And back then, when boys like girls, they approach them and talk to them. Way back when. <laughs> yeah, you you didn't send her a DM? You didn't send her a DM? <laughs> I didn't send her a DM. I mustered up the courage and I approached her and I spoke to her. And I think we might have went out like the next day or really soon after, but we definitely took some time or I guess I had to pursue her a little bit before we actually got into a relationship. She was here for school. She graduated, went back to Sweden. We kept in touch a little bit. She came back to visit her sister and we, we went out to lunch and we had Thai. <laughs> and after that, it was, it was sort of official. 
spent, we probably spent the next year, three months in Sweden, three months in the U.S., sort of going back and forth. That's so great. You mentioned Labor Day on Eastern Parkway, and my husband's family, he grew up in Flatbush. And I, being a girl who grew up in Chinatown, had no idea how big Labor Day was in Brooklyn. Literally, he was like, oh yeah, we're going to go down to my parents' house and we're going to do this Labor Day thing. And I'm like, okay. Then I'm thinking it's like a parade with the American flag because it's Labor Day. But meanwhile, it's music and dancing and it's like carnival all happening in Brooklyn. It's so much fun. Roman, you've got to go check it out one day. Yeah. So Sam, we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? You think he's ready for speed round? I think you're ready. You've earned a speed round, Stanley. You ready for speed round? I'm ready. So first question, what's one thing about you that no one expects? That I'm hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect that. The setup. It's so funny because. You have a reserved manner about you as this, the people who've gotten to this point in the episode. And for you, that's like the perfect punchline. That's hilarious. That's why it's... It's almost like you rehearsed that one. No, nah, nah, I'm, I'm really funny. <laughs> we'll tune in for your comedy podcast exactly. hour next. Exactly. <laughs> Can you recommend a book or a movie? And you've actually mentioned one, but that has characters that you relate to. So one of my favorite movies is City of God. And why City of God oh. is because I really connected with the character Rocket, the photographer. Literally what he did in, in the movie is kind of how I approach photography, right? Literally always has his camera and is just looking to document what's going on around him. Such a good movie. I love that choice. That was worth the wait, Stanley. It is speed round, though. I have to remind you. <laughs> I think this is going to be an easy answer. What's your favorite mom dish? Corned beef stew. Mm. How'd she make it? Yeah, what did she put in it? So, I mean, corned beef stew, is I grew up with it. And it, for me, beyond it just being amazing, it reminds me of success. Because when I came home with a good report card or did something that made my parents proud, that was what I... I don't know if you guys have ever had it, but I know people hear corned beef and think, really? No, but the way <laughs> the way we make it is absolutely amazing. It's one of the most flavorful things you'll ever eat. Oh, I love that it, she used it as a reward for you. That's so wonderful. I mean, even to this day, I went to see my mom for the first time Monday since COVID kicked in. Like she was stuck in, in Ghana for a couple months. Here's a great example, right? So I'm not someone that really big on like birthday parties and whatnot. And I usually don't do a ton to celebrate my birthday, but I usually just go see my mom on my birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's her day too. It's her day too. Yeah. It's, it's her day and I know it'll make her happy. So she was in Ghana. I mean, we all spent time together in Ghana in December and she stayed, we came back, she stayed. And then obviously March hit and she was, the borders closed. So she couldn't come back. We would talk every so often and she'd tell me about this plane that's taking citizens back to the U.S. And I kept saying to her, don't rush to come back. Like, you're not really coming back to anything. And if you think about where we were in March, April, May, June even, it wasn't a place you wanted to be. And I'm like, the numbers are, are fairly low in, in Ghana right now. You might as well stay there. You're surrounded by family and whatnot, like. Don't rush it. So, of course, my mom, here we are, I think it was July, and there was a plane coming back 
towards the end of the month and my birthday is on August 3rd. So of course my mom takes the plane to come back just so she can be here for my birthday. And she obviously had the quarantine or whatever the case may be. So she flies back Thursday. I think my birthday was that Monday. And as she always does, she asked me what I like for her to cook for me. And I say corned beef stew, jollof, fish. So she makes it all, puts it in the Uber. So I'll have my favorite dish on my birthday. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. That's the best answer we've gotten out of all of our guests. So what's your least favorite food? Liver. (laughs) I can't can't eat liver. So the first time I went back to Ghana, literally after 25 years of being in the U.S. and not having gone back. This was 2006. I hadn't been there since I was a child. So everyone obviously is super excited to see me. And, you know, the reality is every place we went to visit, they cook for you. So we probably ate five times a day (laughs) for the first week, just because everyone was so excited to see us and they were all cooking. And for the most part, it was just my wife and I at the time, we ate everything. And you know how it is. (laughs) Like everyone's super excited and calling each other to brag about how good their food is and how he ate all of their food. And they're making you things that you liked as a kid and whatnot the last time they saw you. And we go to one aunt's house and she makes liver. And no matter what it is, I'll try. But liver, I just, I had to tap out. And I I felt so bad because she put her heart and soul in it. Everything else she made was amazing. But I literally just can't take the texture of liver. So I couldn't eat it. And my wife couldn't eat it. And we, we both looked at her and said, sorry, <laughs> we oh. can't eat it. And she's still hearing about that today from all of your relatives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? If I could interview anybody, it would definitely be Malcolm X. I mean, just someone that had a really big impact on me at an early age and has lived a really interesting life. This isn't someone who just knew from day one that he was going to be an individual that fought for his people. He went through a whole stage in his life where he was doing the opposite of sort of what he was doing when he was murdered. You know what I mean? So I think like having that perspective, I think is really interesting. Like when you talk to older people that were around in his time and you see his different connections in terms of he had relationships with hustlers in Harlem, as well as black Muslims, as well as Muhammad Ali and athletes and new positions and entertainers. And he was also a photographer and he also had all girls. Yeah. So you're essentially a version of him. I mean, I would like to think so, or at least striving. So that brings us to our last question, Stanley. What does being a modern minority mean to you? A modern minority. I mean, interestingly enough, even understanding the concept of, of minority, it's it's not something that I like to embrace because, again, I think it's a word and and sort of approach to segmenting people of color that I just don't agree with. And I I think it's one of those things that keeps us seeking validation from a quote-unquote majority. But for the purpose of (laughs) answering your question, (laughs) I think for me, it's 
taking my history and my past and combining it with my present here in the U.S. in a way where my children get the best of both worlds. They get a connection to who we are from an ethnic perspective, who my parents are, who our ancestors are, but they also get the quote-unquote American experience. And the goal is to give them enough guidance to take the best from both worlds. That's really great. Stanley, this genuinely has been a very thoughtful and interesting conversation. And I uh, Do you say this at the end of every interview? I don't. No. Well, Sometimes I'm, I'm going to go listen to the other ones. Yeah, you should you're listen. Just, He's not. You're going to be sad if you say credit. this at the No, no, no. You're giving him way too much credit. Okay. Just we'll keep this in the episode, but. This sounds weird, but I'll say this. I hesitate sometimes before I say words like thoughtful or intelligent to black people. And this sounds weird in this modern day because why you're not supposed to be? No, it's a commentary on you as a person. You got me thinking about things that I was not thinking about before, about our current state, but also my own past. And Hmm. I'm in a weird place right now, dude. I'm not going to lie. This podcast sometimes acts as therapy for me to bounce ideas and thoughts and frustrations about the world. We don't have to have the same point of view, but I like where you're coming from, I guess is what I tell you. That's the best I can do. So thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, guys. You. This was this was fun. Yeah, man. Thanks. One thing I'll say is when we met, I mean, you didn't ask me this, but I guess I'll, I'll tell Please. you guys anyway. The one thing that I've learned during this whole pandemic thing is just the importance of patience. You know what I mean? Like at the beginning of this thing, if I had known now what I know in March, I would have just tried to have more fun in March. March and April were really tough times just because of the, and I'm sure it's not just for me, but the uncertainty of this pandemic really took a lot out of me. You know what I mean? Because it was like, as a parent, I'm literally thinking what's going to happen with work, what's going to happen with finances, what's going to happen with health. My parents are older and Mm -hmm. whatnot. So there were so many different things to just worry about where I am now in terms of like literally the last couple of weeks. I'm like, wow, <laughs> a little bit of patience and, and faith go a long way. Well, I'll add to that. I think the silver lining to this terrible shit that we're in, not just the pandemic, but other things, has been a very kind of carpe diem, not just in your own moment in your own life, but it's like, okay, what are we here doing? Shit needs to count. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. If, if you're going to yeah. do something, do it right and make it count either at home yeah. or whatever the extracurricular thing, be at a restaurant or a podcast. So I'm thinking a lot about that more now because of we're all in it. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll leave you with this, but just thinking about even having a restaurant and all of us being first time restaurant owners and going through a pandemic and not knowing what and how we're going to survive a pandemic, but being in a place where literally we went from serving first responders and people, organizations giving us money to feed hospital workers, to feeding underprivileged kids, to feeding protesters. These are the things that literally help keep us afloat. So for me, community is always very important. And this last six months or however long has really been a sign in terms of the importance of community and supporting each other and and sort of, again, just being patient and believing that things will, will be okay. I hope they will be. I hope you're right. I, I need think, you to be right, I think, man. I think with you doing what you're doing, Stanley, they will be right. Because as you were just talking, it just, you're speaking about purpose. And I think everything happens for a reason. And I think you established the restaurant that you have. You've brought together people. 
as you have in such a special way. And you are able to give back to the community in that way. And even just you being on the show is helping all of us to come together in a way that we haven't before. So thank you for that. I hope you guys will invite me back for a part two. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. My least favorite food is probably Thanksgiving food. What? <laughs> oh my goodness. Wait, like everything? The turkey, the sweet potatoes. Oh yeah, the turkey. Stuffing. You have to add the flavoring to turkey and mashed potatoes are usually not very flavorful. So I have to add things in there. But yeah, I think that's my least favorite. <laughs> this is the question where I start to hate our guests. I don't know why I keep asking it. <laughs> he gets so offended. He's like, what do you mean you don't like those? Like, that's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 